once your children leave home and certainly get married, you're done in some ways. Although my husband's got an incredible talk on parenting for a lifetime, which I think needs to be emphasized. You're never done. But in many ways, you're certainly out of control. And I knew that my job was to do my work on my knees for our family at that point. And so the, the reason this ever came into being was because uh, it was my own journey. And I decided to look in the Bible and find out somebody whose prayers worked because I needed my prayers to work desperately. And of course I found Elijah. And as I turned to 1 Kings 17, 18, 19, I found something amazing. It's all about his prayer life. There's nobody else there. Only God. Only God in the ravine. Only God in the cave. Only God under the broom tree. And I thought, how neat. If I can figure out what he did right here, and what did God say, and what was he saying to God, and and what worked, then maybe I can grow in my prayer life. And to tell you quite honestly, I had grown in many dimensions up to that point in my life. But as I honestly looked at my spiritual disciplines, I realized maybe I'd grown as a teacher, maybe I'd grown as a leader, a women's ministry leader and all of that, but I hadn't grown one whit in my prayer life. And I didn't realize it until trouble came. And often that's the way it happens. So with that background, and I don't know how much of this material we're going to do in the time, I'm just going to go with what comes to mind. So I have no idea how I'm going to go through this. But if you turn to James chapter 5, which is where I began. And incidentally, if things happen in your life, sit there and think, which part of the Bible addresses this? You know, where do I go? Well, I went to the Psalms for comfort. And I went to the epistles for instruction. And then I sat there and I thought, who is there in the Bible that I could look at their life, this ordinary person, and learn from them? And of course, that's when I remembered Elijah. And it says in James chapter 5, verse 13, is any one of you in trouble, he should pray. Well, you should if you could, and you would, but you don't. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he sinned, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is dynamic in its working as the full meaning of this verse. The prayer of a righteous man, King James, availeth much. New King James, similar. So the prayer of a righteous man is dynamic in its working. It's dynamite. It works. So the first question, of course, as I looked at this, that James, the brother of Jesus, had written to the early church the thing that came to my mind, well, that's probably what's wrong, why my prayers don't work. I'm not righteous enough. I'm not good enough Christian. I'm not in tune with God. 
Maybe that's why my prayers don't work. But then, of course, you have to do a study on righteous. What does that mean? And basically, it means forgiven. So everybody in this room is righteous, if, of course, you've accepted Christ. And so, as you represent leadership in the churches, there came a point in your life where you either realized, if you're churched, that you need to own this for yourself, or you came out of the blue, like I did, into Christ. And you can look back to that day when you became righteous, just as if I'd never sinned, justified, just as if I'd never sinned. And that means you were forgiven. And it says that the prayer of a forgiven person is dynamic in, it works. And I got all excited, yes, yes, yes. And then James looks for an example, looks for an example in the Bible. And uh, he finds Elijah. Elijah was a man just like us. Normal, ordinary. I wish I was like that, but he said he was just like us. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, earth produced its crops. Now, my brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And so here we have the example of Elijah praying the most incredible prayers and God answering his prayers worked. They were dynamic in its working. The word prayer and work go against the grain of some people. They say, no, 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 no. Prayer is mystical. Prayer is worship. Worship is one aspect of prayer only. Only. And I'm not going to be touching the subject of praise and worship, but I'm going to be talking mostly about intercession for us. But when I look at James and what he says, he is putting his prayers that are answered in the context of trouble and suffering. And there's a lot of suffering in James chapter 5. There is people suffering. Confess your sins one to another. The church needs to be able to mend rifts and to go to someone if you need to make things right. And he talks about that. There is the healing in the church he talks about. Prayer can help that. Maybe your church has got a splitting coming or has had one. Or there's there's problem. And the smaller the church is, the worse that problem is. Because it's the bigger the church, the more you can absorb those sort of disagreements. And most of you, if you're coming from the normal American church, uh, 90 of American churches are under 150. And so we hear about the mega churches, we serve a mega church, etc. We hear about the meta churches, and uh, we don't hear about the 98% of the churches, which is the church in America. And when you get a split in one of those churches, it can be absolutely devastating. My father, well, we never went to church, we were raised churchless, but my father, I found out at his funeral, was a backslidden Christian. It was nice to find that out. And I remember standing there with my mouth hanging open and saying to my aunt, who told me, what happened? What happened? She said, well, there was this church split, and his best friend was on the other side of the church split. And he walked out the door of Bank Hall Mission and said, I'll never enter the church again in my life. Never did. Went to, went to his death without ever walking back into a church. He was carried into the church for his funeral, and that was it. Isn't that sad? 
And so, if there's healing that needs to be done, we can have a part. We can pray dynamic prayers that will work in that situation. He talks about sickness, physical sickness. Does that mean that our prayers can work healing? Well, no, only God works healing. But it might be that God will say yes, it might be he'll say no, or it might be he'll say wait. Or like Lazarus, he might say no, uh, this is for the glory of God, and he might take him home to heaven. Poor Lazarus, he called him back, I can just see him saying, oh no. I've got to die all over again, he's the only man I know, died twice. So he didn't want to come back. We have too low a view of heaven when we pray about healing sometimes. But here we have it addressed. And uh, I am living proof that sometimes God can heal dramatically and instantly. I was converted in hospital. I was busy dying. And the day after I was saved, I was better and walked out of that place. And God simply took me there to get me saved. However, I have lived for many, 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 Yes, with a back problem. I am missing three discs at the base of my spine. And God has never chosen to mend my spine, even though I have asked and other people have asked on my behalf. And so sometimes God says yes, and sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says maybe or wait. And uh, James addresses this. doesn't mean you stop praying if he says no to the big request. As Paul said, it's a good thorn. I've got a thorn. I asked him to take it away. He didn't. But it's a good thorn because it's driving me to God. And his strength is made perfect in my weakness. So we don't know why God says no. And the mystery of unanswered prayer is all over this Bible. All over this Bible. And so when we look at the people in the Bible that sometimes were healed and sometimes we weren't, Paul had the gift of healing. He, they'd take handkerchiefs from the man's body in the book of Acts, lay them on sick people and they'd get up and they'd be fine. But he himself wasn't healed. Gift of healing, but he himself wasn't healed. And so you need to get into 1 Corinthians 12 and figure out what is this thorn bit. But God can help you walk through all these things. So you're praying for healing in a marriage. You're praying, and in our case, God said no, didn't happen. Because he comes up against the will of man. And he will not interfere. And he will not make us do what we need to do. And so there is a huge mystery in prayer. Huge mystery. Can we pray for this? Should we pray for the other? And the answers are in here. As much as we need to know. As much as God knows our tiny little minds can understand. And for the rest, it's better to accept mystery than a bad answer. Do you find yourself always struggling to give an answer for everything? The, the, we have to give an answer. No, no, you don't. Because God has not chosen to give us answers to some deep, deep things in this world. For those, we need faith and trust in a God who is intrinsically good. He's good, even if things are bad. He's good, even though we're suffering. He's good, he's good, if he says no. The goodness of God doesn't change because of an answered prayer. Now that's revealed. And so prayer is not a shopping list in the heavenly supermarket. Prayer is far more than that. And of course it's our speaking relationship with God. Prayer is our speaking relationship with God. Let me just run through a couple of things here. Prayer that doesn't work doesn't work. And 
You've got to work at it. And people say, no, 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 no. You know, if you're a Mary and you have the gift of prayer, listen, the prayer itself is a gift because it speaks of your relationship with God. That's all of our gifts. But don't get out of it like that and say, well, she's got the gift of prayer and I don't. Oh, I'm so glad. I've got other gifts. The prayer itself is somewhere you go. It's, it's, it's not something you're gifted with. The gift is a relationship with God and prayer is your speaking relationship with God. It goes with it. it. goes with it. And what you have to do is learn the art of leaving things undone to get it done. And all of us need to learn that art. What is the best dish? The whole thing of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. Jesus is playing on words if you read it. I am told. I don't read the original languages. But I can get tools and figure it out myself. All of us can do that. And when Mary's sitting there and she's being criticized for it by Martha, Jesus says, leave her alone. She's offering me the best dish. Martha, Martha, you're busy getting a seven-course meal ready. All these dishes. She's offering me the best dish. She's nourishing me by her attention and her listening. She's chosen the best dish, and it won't be taken away from her. That whole thing just lights up when you realize what Jesus is saying. And so the art of leaving things undone, as Mary did, that the greater thing be done, the invitation to come and listen to him, is... uh, all part of prayer. How well do we do with that? When you have a little minute open up, if you ever do, in your schedule, and all of you are very busy, what do you do with it? Well, if you're like me, you go to your to-do list. I, oh, good, I didn't know I was going to have a half hour. Oh, somebody's canceled, I don't need to. I don't need to cancel them. Or, oh, okay, Stuart's plane's delayed, so that means I don't have to go to the airport. That gives me an hour before I have to go. And I rush to my to-do list. Great, I can just get this thing that I just didn't dare put on my list today. Now then, the discipline, the art of leaving something undone is that unexpected gift of a half hour, a quarter of an hour, an hour that suddenly opens up in the day. And the art is in the middle of everything else that needs to be done to choose that dish to offer to him and nourish him. Prayer is as much nourishing God with our attention, giving him satisfaction, as it is him giving us satisfaction. That's all part of prayer. Our daughter is here today, and I never get enough time with her to see her. But she, uh, along with 16 other people, were all in our little house for one of our family events, which don't happen too much anymore, but uh, this a couple of years ago. And we had had three hectic Christmas days or Thanksgiving or something, and Judy had been helping me. Uh, when you've got all these grandchildren, 13 grandchildren, that's a lot of work. And quite honestly, I, I have to give up wanting everybody to be together because it isn't always wonderful when everybody's together. <laughs> And you never have this minute to sit and look or ask each other a question. And we had had one of those weekends. We were dashing to come to Elmbrook before Judy's family took off and went back to Chicago. And uh, I I looked at her and I said, I have not even looked in your face this whole three days. This is awful. Now you're leaving. Come up and get ready with me. Come Come up to my room and get ready with me for church. And she just stopped and put her hand on my arm and said, I was hoping you'd ask me. And I said, oh, Jude, I'm sorry. 
And what my daughter was saying is, Mom, didn't happen. We didn't make time. We didn't, we didn't leave something undone that this important thing we'd done. We didn't need to do that extra snack meal. We didn't need. They could have helped themselves. You know? And it's the art of leaving something undone that that should be done. And when she said that to me, I've thought much about it because I think that God looks at us and says, I was hoping you'd ask me. Have you ever thought of that? Probably not because we basically think of prayer for our benefit. Right. Instead of something the Father is waiting for. Waiting for. So we need to realize prayer that doesn't work, doesn't work, the art of leaving things undone. We need to learn to pray in the middle of the muddle. Are you waiting for this idyllic? It'll never happen. (laughs) That has been the lesson, a life lesson for me. I do it in the middle of the muddle. My famous story of getting in the playpen and putting the kids out because it was the only place I could find. (laughs) But you know, if I had waited in those days when I was being mom and dad and Stuart was on the road all those years of evangelism and mission, I would never have met with God. I had three small children under school age. I was living with my husband below the poverty line in missions in Europe. And we didn't have money for a washing machine. And it's England where the sun never comes out. So you have to dry the clothes that you wash by hand around the fire. I had an old mangle, one of those. You probably don't know what that is. You're all too young. (laughs) And I was desperate. I mean, my attempt to find that time with God, which I knew was going to be my survival of those very, very stressful years, was, was to find my closet. And we didn't even have closets. We were living in this little lodge at the castle gates. And then I saw the playpen. Oh! So I got in, put them out. I could still see them. And I was safe from all those sticky little fingers. It's wonderful. And they started rattling the bars to get at me. Only time they wanted to get in instead of out. But I do remember because Dave, our eldest son, told this story as a young pastor up in Michigan. And I'd been there sitting on the front row, all proud, different being the pastor's mother to the pastor's wife. I love all of it, but I cannot tell you what it's like to be ministered to by your children. What a gift. So here's David, and I'm sitting there all proud, his little church up in Michigan. And suddenly he begins to tell this story. And I see all his sweet church people trying not to look. <laughs> and I suddenly want to be on the back pew. And I, then I thought, what's he, what's he going to say? I didn't even know he'd remembered. Well, you would remember if your mother sat in your playpen, don't you? <laughs> and so he said, my sister and I learned to leave mother alone when she was in our playpen. because she was a whole lot nicer mommy when she got out than when she got in. I was modeling something, not intentionally. I was desperate to survive those things that were happening in my life at that point. But uh, David and Judy recognized that something was happening in there 
with mommy, her Bible, Jesus, who she said was there, but they couldn't see, and her cup of tea, which was essential. And uh, it made her a nicer mommy. Made her a nicer mommy. And so we have to learn to pray in the middle of the muddle. Find your playpen. Just find your playpen, if you're in those years. Sleep deprivation is better than God deprivation. Did you know that? For me, that's what it's meant since I began my journey of faith. I am sleep deprived. I have been gloriously sleep deprived for 12 years. And I'm none the worse. I have women come up and say, well, I'd fast, but I get a headache. I say, so? Well, I get a headache. So? Have a headache? It doesn't say fast if you get a headache. Don't, you know. And we are so intent on being healthy and well and whatnot. Listen, <laughs> just 20 minutes off your sleep schedule. Start there. And I have never had so much energy in my life. Um, I use my jet lag at the moment. When I wake at 3.30, which I have for the last five days, I get up. No point lying there wishing myself back to sleep. It's not going to happen. And those early hours have been so precious to me. Then I try and catch a nap later in the day, and if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. But sleep deprivation is better than God deprivation, and that's what we need to think about. We need to meet with God without an agenda. Leave your Bible, leave your prayer list, just you and him. I was hoping you'd ask me, five minutes a day so that you're not meeting with him for someone else. Okay? Now, you have to do all of that help stuff and take your list and your Bible another time. But give God five minutes a day without an agenda and just intentionally put yourself into his presence. Stay there until you sense his grace and the focus changes from you to him. And I can't tell you what that will feel like. But you will know. Because what happens when we go to prayer is we are all over the prayer room. And somehow you have to get your attention off you to him. He that comes to God must believe he is and he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, Hebrews tells us. And so... We have to wait, and I do this with thousands of women. I make them wait on God and show them what that means and what it is and try to make it happen. And it's quite incredible. We teach them to listen to each other. One prays, everybody listens, and we say amen. The next prays, everybody listens. And then I said, and now we're not going to say anything at all, and we're going to learn the art of silence, which they had never done. And that was the most meaningful. I was absolutely mobbed afterwards. Can you help us a bit more about this meditation? Can you help us a bit more about this silence? How do we use silence? We've never, we've never done this before. And so um, we have to meet with God without an agenda, but silence. You have to use silence. What do you do with silence? Well, if you're an American, you can't stand silence. Even sitting on the loo. <laughs> Toilet. You've got this music piped in, you know. 
There's nowhere in the world you can go without music, even in the ladies' room. I said, yes, that's right. Only in America. So that's what we have to do. Then we have to what I call go through the wall. Now, um, my family are very athletic. My daughter ran till she had both knees operated on, so she wrecked her knees. But she ran in high school and uh, junior high, you know, cross country, and she's a runner. Dave, our eldest, played soccer for Bethel College, but he's a runner too. And Pete, of course, our six foot seven, is a basketball player. And so they all ran, and my husband ran every day. And Pete, when he was 15, was running. And he said, Mother, everybody in the family is running except you. Now, this is not good. And I will run with you. And I said, Pete, I don't want to do this. He said, yes, we will run. So I got my little shoes on, and <laughs> we st he started training me. And so we would run around the block, and I noticed the curtains moving. You know, Ooh, it's Mrs. Briscoe and Pete running around the block, you know. But it was very embarrassing because he would run round me in circles. <laughs> so he was just, come on, Mom, this is terrific, you know, and I'd be going, slow, 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 slow. And uh, he, he would instruct me, and he said, you know, there's a thing called the wall, Mother, and you have to go through the wall. And what he meant was get your second wind, or we would say, or whatever. Well, it only ever happened to me twice. <laughs> before my career finished of running, which wasn't long after it began. And he was right. You get to the point I call the point of push, where you just want to die. And you say, what am I doing this to myself for? Yeah, this is ridiculous. I'm just going to walk, you know. And you're just about to stop, and Pete would say, no, 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 Mom, push. You've got to push. He called it the point of push. And if you persevere, if you push, if you endure, if you at that point go, suddenly you're through and you could run forever. It's true. And I have a theory that most of the Christian church lives this side of the wall where prayer is concerned. And we get to this point where we say, it's not working, I'm not enjoying it, this isn't you know, happening. And we do not persevere. We don't persevere. I mean, look at Elijah on top of the mountain. Where's the cloud? Is the blessing coming? Watch and pray, watch and pray. I think he'd still be up there if that cloud hadn't come. And that's the perseverance that James talks about. And that's the perseverance that Elijah taught me as I looked at his life. Can we persevere when there's nothing until there's something? You have to learn that. It's an art. And then, of course, we must learn to pray in the dark. When you don't know what to pray for, you have as a help the Holy Spirit. It's one of his jobs. It says in Romans that when you don't know what to pray and how to pray, he prays in you. He gives you ideas. He shows you. He triggers an idea in your heart and in your mind. And there's been so many times in my life where I have been absolutely out of ideas of how to pray and what to pray. And, and I have just said, Holy Spirit, bring to mind the right thing to pray. Not what I want to pray or what I've been praying, but help me. And the other way that I 
lean on God's Holy Spirit to help me is when I'm praying for other people. I do, I, I, I do have a list of sorts, but the list can become a master. And there is no way in the world I could pray for all the people that asked me to pray for them. There is absolutely no way. And so I don't promise to because that would be wrong. But I say to them, and this I mean, as God brings you to my mind, I promise to pray for you. And that's something you can say. Because you are supposed to be praying for the people that you lead. They will want you to be praying for them. Don't promise them. Because as you go on, there will be more and more and more and more and more people on that list. And it is wrong to say, I will pray for you. I will pray for you every day or I will pray for you consistently because it's just not going to happen as you become more effective there's going to be more people but say as God brings you to mind and I have found driving down the freeway I forgot my notes this morning and I realized I had to go back and get my notes for my final session and first of all I was very cross with myself because I live right out in the boondocks and that was half an hour there and half an hour back and all sorts of things I needed to do here so I, I get in the car and I think well don't waste it Jill And I just said, Holy Spirit, this is an unexpected drive time. Bring to mind, before I get home, somebody that needs my prayers today. I could not believe the people that popped into my mind. I could not believe it. They're on page six of my list. You know, (laughs) I'm going to bed for a bit. And I haven't even thought about them. And I have absolutely no doubt they needed my prayer. I have no idea why, so I didn't know why. I said, I don't know what to pray. And so I prayed generally. I prayed through one of Paul's prayers for them, that you would strengthen them in the inner man by your spirit. You know, just go right the way through the scriptures. And uh, that's the safe thing to do. The Holy Spirit would always wish us to pray according to the principles of the word of God. And then, of course, we have to learn the conditions of prayer. And don't let this put you off. And don't let it put you off training and teaching Because I remember as a young Christian being taught, well, you have to do this and you have to fulfill this condition. And I just got so paranoid. Oh, well, maybe that's wrong or I shouldn't be asking this. Um, Don't let that put you off. But there are some basic conditions to answer prayer. And the biggest one is you must pray according to the will of God revealed in the word of God. That is a basic condition of answered prayer. You must pray according to the will of God, revealed in the word of God. Now let me illustrate it from the life of Elijah. He lived in Tishbe, little nowhere Tishbe. I've been to Tishbe. There's still four Bedouin houses on this little mound in Jordan. I couldn't believe I was where Elijah was born and grown up. But it's just the same as it was when he was born and grew up. The goats were there, a little Bedouin boy went by with these goats, and I just about lost it because that's what Elijah would have looked like when he was a little boy. And so he grew up in Tishbe as a shepherd. Everybody still is a shepherd in Tishbe. They never did anything else. But somewhere over the mountains, and you can see over the mountains, Jezreel, the capital of the city, miles, miles away, Jezebel and Ahab were doing their stuff, and Israel was falling apart. And so here's the young shepherd boy, Elijah, and he hears what's happening. And he begins to pray prayers that work about the rain in Tishbe. You can go anywhere on your knees. And he went to Jezreel on his knees before he ever went in person. So he goes in prayer and says, do something about Jezebel. 
God. He is praying according to the will of God revealed in the word of God. If you start in Leviticus and follow the references through, you will see first in Leviticus it says, God speaking, if you fall away from me, I will show you what I feel about that and I will stop the rain. And when I stop the rain, you will know my displeasure and the crops will die and you won't have anything to eat and you'll get weak and your enemies will take you over. Now, over and over again, before you get to Elijah's story, which is only a very small piece of this Bible, before you get to this part of history, God has repeated that. Want to know what I think about your sin? Look at the heavens. There won't be any rain. So when Elijah prays, shut the heavens up, this isn't using prayer like a magic wand. Don't rain on my party bit. This is praying according to the will of God. Show them what you feel, God. And God answers that prayer. So we are not to pray stupid prayers. We are not to pray silly prayers. We are to pray things that we already know are a principle in the word of God. Those prayers work. And so when you're praying for something, ask yourself, is this God's will? Does God want this to happen? If you're praying for somebody that's lost, it is not God's will that any should perish. Do a study on, with your concordance on the will of God. Just make a list, which is what I'm doing at the moment for a big meeting I'm heading up for. They want me to talk about the will of God. I get my concordance out. I look up will of God. I find in the New Testament at least 11 things that says this is the will of God. So those are 11 points that I'll be using. You look up each one and figure out what the will of God is, and then you begin to pray about it. And one of the things I found is it is not God's will that any should perish. So if I am praying for the lost, I know he wants them to come to him. And I can pray with confidence. And I can ask God to soften their hearts and to open their minds, that his spirit might convince them and convert them and regenerate them. That is something I can pray in faith. Now then, doesn't mean it'll happen. That's not my business. They have the choice. You know, so often people say to me, my children have such a strong will, and I always add, or a strong won't. (laughs) (laughs) And God has chosen if... Everything is in operation. That person is alerted by the Spirit to his need of Christ. And all they, they hear the gospel and they know about it. There is still that key. They have to receive him because the will of God is that they should not perish. And in the plan of God, he has planned for those that repent to be conformed to the image of his Son and to be saved. And he, knowing all things, because this is the line of time, and I'm here, has seen whether we will repent. And when he sees us repenting, he chooses us to be conformed to Jesus over here. So he has already chosen us before the foundation of the world, because he sees what we're going to do. He also sees the person who is alerted to the Spirit, and sees the choice, and understands his dilemma, and he sees him reject Christ. And so, he chooses them to be lost. He doesn't choose them to be lost and make it impossible to be saved. That's what we do. We make that choice. We choose hell. God doesn't choose hell. He is not willing that any should perish. And this should help as we pray for the lost. 
And what I do when I pray for my extended family is I pray according to his will. It's not your will they should perish, God. I intercede for them. Forty-five years of interceding for them because we have to persist. And when there's nothing, we have to wait until there's something and pray in faith until the last no, until the last rejection. And it might be we'll get to heaven and we won't ever know and see the answer of our prayers until the doors open and those people we've prayed for walk through. But our job is to pray the prayer of faith and leave God's wisdom and goodness to cope with those who reject him. So there is mystery in prayer. And we can't rush around claiming what God says we can't claim. And so the more you are a student of this, the better prayer you will be, which is very obvious, because if you know what his will is, you will be praying after his will. Jesus says it over and over again. Pray according to my will. Pray in my name. Pray according to my purposes. And you will receive. Not pray according to your will and pray according to your wants. In fact, James says, That's why your prayers aren't answered. You're praying that you might consume it with your lust. So there are huge mysteries. Just keep talking to him about them. And you know what he'll say? He'll say, well, talk about that when you get home. Talk about that when you get home. Now, let's get on with the things I have explained to you and see what we can do with those. So we must learn to pray in the dark sometimes. Must learn to pray in the dark. So what I want to do is... I just want to give you a little quick review of some of the things I've said, and I want you to talk to each other about them. Find somebody to talk to, and just for 10 minutes, review this and pray together. Make sure that everyone's got somebody to talk with and pray. Always in your ministry program, you should be developing your whole prayer ministry. And that means not the little group who feel called to do it, but our generation has done a bad job of training the next generation in prayer. And I realize that when I go out of the country and I go back to my England particularly and Keswick Convention, I get up at 6.30 in the morning. I will not miss a prayer meeting. And I sit there and I listen to this generation and they have trained the next generation. Those prayer meetings, they have thousands come to them. They are just as important to Keswick Convention as any of the major world speakers that they listen to teach the Bible. And you will always find thousands of people up at 6.30 in the morning in small groups. And I sit there and I listen and I think, yes, what did we do or what didn't we do? Because if you think about your ministry, the prayer part is usually the hardest thing. You can't get it going or there's a few faithful women who um, are doing it and they have not been able to reproduce themselves. So we need to make sure you are just once a month, that will do, that you are training them in the art of prayer. Because just selfishly, let me tell you, no matter how well you plan and program and teach, it will not go anywhere unless prayer is absolutely woven in and out of it along with everything else they're doing. You know, Stormy O'Martin's got a wonderful book out on prayer. What Happens When Women Pray is still one of my favorite books. And so I'm not saying go and buy this one. I'm just saying go and buy something. (laughs) Or choose something so that you can integrate that into your ministry.